same book we've been going through, Nehemiah, but it's the fifth chapter, the whole fifth chapter tonight. So turn with me there. I intentionally didn't turn, pre-turn to it so that I could suffer with you in trying to find it instead of going full steam ahead. Here we go. <clears throat> I'm going to be reading from the... I meant to bring the other version. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so it'll be a bit different from that one up there. Um, now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of the wives against their brothers, against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh now the flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought these charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We are, as we, as far as we are able, have brought back the Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers, and they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields and their vineyards and their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may be shaken out and empty. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took, it, took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in this work on the wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance." Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on my people. 
Remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord, and Daryl's going to preach to us. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be together again. We thank you certainly for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as we work our way through this story, that we would hear what the application is to us, what it is that you intend for our lives. We thank you for Nola. We pray that the celebration of her 95th uh, birthday would indeed be a celebration. We ask, Lord, for you to pour out your abundant blessings on her life. Hear her prayers and grant her the desires of her heart. We thank you for her witness and for her faithful service. We pray, Heavenly Father, for our anniversary, that it might go well, that the congregations might come together and we might enjoy each other's company, getting to meet other people from other congregations. Um, But that through it all, you would still be the focus and that we would be giving thanks to you for what you are doing and achieving in our lives and in the life of this church. And Lord, we want to thank you for both of our interims, for both David's, um, and for both uh, students in training who are away on a conference this coming week, and for Pastor Alvin. We pray particularly for Dave Butterfield and Rosemary. We thank you for the little birth of the new little grandson, and we ask, Lord, for the ministry of your grace uh, to the other members of the family, his other daughter who has lost a son. And we pray that they might be uh, very aware that you are with them and that you are there to comfort them and to help them to cope through life's griefs and ups and downs. Lord, we desire that for ourselves as well, that you would be with us, that you would speak to us, and that you would help us be better at just following closely with you. So we pray you'll speak to us tonight, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Nehemiah chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's an interesting chapter, and in it, the Apostle Paul tells a story of where Israel came out of Egypt and went through the Red Sea and things like that. What's interesting about 1 Corinthians 10 is that Paul, repeating that history, says in verse, things, verse 6, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened in the Old Testament. These things are recorded as examples for us, is what the Apostle Paul is saying. says the same thing in verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come. God's word is written to equip us, to shape us, to help us to become better followers of the Lord Jesus, or as we say, passionate followers of the Lord Jesus. And the Bible contains examples, 1 Corinthians 10, both negatively, things to avoid, but also positively, things that we should be emulating. And Nehemiah 5 is certainly one of those sorts of chapters. There's an example here, both to avoid and to embrace. Uh, as Andrew said, and Andrew has resolved his internal conflict, he's going for the pizza option. Um, resolving relational difficulties, conflict. Live long enough and you're going to get upset and you're going to get upset by somebody and you're going to upset somebody and you're going to get hurt and it's just part of life in this fallen world because we are not perfect. It's very sad when it happens between believers because we do have an expectation that we won't do that. That Christians won't fall out, that we won't be in disharmony with one another. But the reality is we are on a journey and we are imperfect and we sometimes either say or do or not say and not do uh, that which can hurt and affect other people. And someone very 
cleverly observed that whenever Christians particularly are in conflict with each other, Satan doesn't take sides. He remains neutral and he feeds both sides with fuel to keep it going because that's what he intends. He wants us to be out of step, out of sort. And through tonight's passage, we will see that when God's people are in conflict with each other, then even God's work can be affected. It can be, in fact, halted. And so Nehemiah is a a marvellous leader who demonstrates for us some good steps for us to be following. When we come to Nehemiah chapter 5, in fact, 4, 5 and 6, we come into this conflict section of the book. Um, And Nehemiah 5 particularly contains new information for us that we haven't come across before in the book. For instance, we are told in verse 3 that there is a famine in the land and that's been there for some time. Um, We have been told that he is the governor, verse 14. We didn't know that. In fact, verse 14 tells us it's a 12-year appointment. That's the equivalent, like he's a state premier. He's answerable to the king, answerable to the prime minister, the chief leader, but he's in charge of whatever province or whatever. He is a guy with some political clout. Verse 18 tells us that as that governor, he tried not to take all of his entitlements. He didn't rip the people off. He was trying to decrease the financial burden upon the people of having um, him as governor. Verse 8 tells us that when he arrived, before he got there, we'll talk a little bit more about this tonight, but uh, when people get into financial straits, when it becomes difficult and they don't have enough money to make ends meet, that one of the options they have, um, you know, besides borrowing and besides mortgaging and things, is they, they can hire out their offspring, their children. And sometimes the Bible, and certainly Nehemiah 5 says, it's like we can sell them into slavery That sounds terrible. Um, But it's not slavery as we are exposed to it in our world today or as we've seen on movies or things like that. It's more like it's hired servants, it's hired labour. It's, um, okay, you pay my debts and I'll work for you for whatever number of years we agree on. And you pay off my debts and you look after me for that period of time. At the end of that period of time, I have finished my labour and I am debt free and I get to start again. It's a way of helping others. I'll come back to that in a moment. When Nehemiah arrived, he found out that some of the people had been poor and so they were in a situation where they had to, in fact, sell. And in this case, they always sell the girls first and then they sell the guys. Why do you think that is? Sorry? You're worth more. Boom, boom. Have another guess? They work less harder. I understand your heart. I wouldn't want to be sitting where you're sitting right now, but I understand what you're saying. And, oh, how can you argue with that? The Bible says the woman is the weaker vessel. Amen? Am I digging a hole here? Nobody's there. <laughs> the Bible does say woman's a weaker vessel doesn't mean what we that means but anyway yeah the guys are stronger and the dads would keep them women were not as valued that's terrible but that's the reality that's what it used to be like you live in a world where because of the gospel of Jesus women have been elevated and are being treated as equals you even get to vote you even get to go to school back in Jesus's day girls never went to school Boys went to school. Girls didn't. Girls stayed home, did the washing, the cooking, the ironing, the domestic duties. 
They were the good old days. Which is remarkable, you see, I'm way off track now, but that's remarkable that Jesus took women and sat them at his feet and what? And taught them, treated them as equals. And that impacted society from him. He's the one who started all this change. And you live in the benefits of that because women are obviously men's equal and sometimes our superiors, aren't they? You're a very responsive crowd. <clears throat> Women are better than us on some things. Rhonda's better at me. Than, oh, I won't get anything. Back on Nehemiah. So they would sell, and they would often sell their daughters first, and then on real destitution, then they would sell their sons because they wanted to keep their sons home to work the land, to work the farm, because their boys were physically stronger. That's why. Um, Nehemiah says that when he came to the community of Israel, and when he arrived, this is in verse 8, he redeemed those who had been sold into slavery and often to the foreign nations, to the Gentiles. In other words, he came along and with the resources, the money that he had from the king, he would go to the people and he would pay off the debt. So the child, the girl or the boy, whatever it was, could be redeemed, paid for, set free and returned to their parents. That's what he did as the governor. And that he not only did that, but in verse 10, it tells us that he was also lending money and grain to the people. He was a benevolent, he was kind-hearted, he was a good governor when he came to the land of Israel. And he came with a mission and a purpose in his heart, which is to rebuild the wall. That's why he was there. And we're told, we didn't know this before, but in verse 14, we're told that when he was the governor, in fact, he was the governor for 12 years. So he came to Israel, he rebuilt the wall, which only took months returned probably after the end of the first year and then returned again and remained as the governor for a period of time and we'll approach that as we move through the book of what changes he instituted on those returns with him as governor. So this chapter informs us of some new things. It tells us especially to take note there was a famine, verse 3, that maybe with an influx of maybe the next slide Amy um, yeah, just stay there for a second. This is going to be maybe all out of order. I'm not sure. Um, with the influx of people and exiles coming back, um, maybe there was a drought. We're not told. Just, we're simply told there was a famine. We're told in verse 4 that there were high taxes. Uh, both the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, he still had his quota of taxes you had to pay for, but there were also tax collectors, and you've heard these sorts of stories. But even back then, because you were so geographically removed from where the king is you would add a little bit and the tax collectors were lining their own pockets they were doing pretty good and the people were paying for it and then on top of that and this is where it gets really messy for the people there were high interest rates verse 5 and so there comes this great outcry of the people in verse 1 the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers and they came up with these sorts of four things we've got large families and we don't have any food we need grain that we can plant to grow food. But right now we're destitute. And these are the ones who are working on the wall. And it's the men and the women, husbands and their wives, who are now complaining. They're going on strike. Secondly, they said, not only don't we have food, we've had to, over the years, mortgage our properties and our farms, our fields and our vineyards and our crops and our olives. And we've slowly mortgaged them off. And now we've got a debt up to beyond our ears. And we can't afford it. 
Then we've had to pay, borrow money to pay for your taxes. You are destitute when you have to go to the bank and borrow money in order to pay a tax bill. It's tough. And that's what they had to do. And then finally, they were so destitute that they even had, were considering, uh, we're, we're going to have to take our children and we're going to have to hire them out to somebody else who will help us pay our debts and pay for our food. So there is this great outcry. People are hungry, they're penniless, they're in debt and they're considering slavery. They felt absolutely powerless. Well, just to summarise this, to flip the coin, that's from the people's perspective. What Nehemiah put two and two together and what he heard was to make him very angry because some of the Jews who had returned prior under Ezra, this is Ezra chapter 7, they had come back with some financial means and they had arrived in Jerusalem and Israel and returned to their homeland and they were reasonably well off. And they thought, here is a real opportunity. You know, sometimes when there's a natural disaster, there are many people who will uh, jump in and will help. But there are some other people, when there is a crisis, when there is a natural disaster, they'll say that is an opportunity to make money. They will inflate their prices because of the need, because of the desperation. Well, these Jewish creditors were acting a little bit like that. They saw this is an opportunity to make a fortune. So they would lend money to these Jewish people around them, the other poorer returnees, but they would lend it at an interest rate. Then when the person couldn't return it, couldn't afford the interest, then they had to mortgage their homes. Now they're in debt. Then when they still couldn't return the interest and now they can't meet the repayments on their loans, now they've got to sell their properties to the creditors at a reduced cost. And now they're in a situation where they have huge debt, no resources, and we've got a family that is hungry and we're probably going to have to sell them off to pay off our debts. And when Nehemiah heard this, he was furious. There was alarming acts of greed causing widespread poverty and injustice. And the people finally had enough. Verse 1, there's this great outcry. Verse 6 tells us that when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. And rightly so. Some people have spoken about how we can have a... Um, you know when you hear about uh, needs and crisis and things going on for so long, it just sort of doesn't impact you anymore? You have a compassion fatigue? You just... It's water off a duck's back. You, something happens and we no longer respond emotionally, we no longer respond with compassion because we've just heard too much of it. It's called compassion fatigue. Well, sometimes I think we're also guilty of a thing called indignation fatigue that we hear wrong things happening, we hear evil things happening and we hear it so often it's just we are indifferent, we are unresponsive to it. And this Nehemiah's reaction certainly reminds me that sometimes it's appropriate for God's people to get angry, to get very angry. Jesus did. Jesus got angry on a few occasions, most famously when he went to the temple. And it's pretty much a similar reason. When Jesus went to the temple and he saw that they had set up their tables for changing money and their tables for selling animals and they had inflated prices. They saw it as an opportunity to make a killing. But they weren't just doing that. They were doing it in a location, in the court of the Gentiles, which was preventing the non-Jewish people, it was preventing the Gentiles coming into the temple of God to encounter and to worship the living God. And Jesus was furious. 
How dare you stop people who don't know God to come and to experience him? The Bible says that Jesus looked around, he observed all that was going on, gathered the data, he left, he went away, he thought about it, he returned the next day and when he returned he came back with some ropes and he stood in the corner. What did he do with the ropes? He plaited them into a whip. What was he going to use the whip for? Jesus, the Son of God. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. What did he want a whip for? What was that? Do you think he was going to whip people? We're not told. There were animals there. He might have been just going to whip to get them out, hunt them away. But whatever it was, he was furious and he was a threat. They didn't stop him. They were frightened of him. They got cranky at him. But he turned the tables over, he released the animals, he cleared the place out. Sometimes it's appropriate to get angry and the anger is to be channeled into appropriate action. We as God's people sometimes need to allow that to happen. There are things that go on in society that we should be angry about and that should be motivating us to act. Well, we should do what Nehemiah did. He got angry and he got angry because of the same reason that Jesus did. They were preventing God's people from achieving God's purposes. They were ripping off God's people. And in fact, these creditors in Nehemiah's time, they were blatantly disobeying God's word. They were indifferent to it. Maybe they were ignorant of it, but I suspect they were not only aware of it, they chose not to obey it. Deuteronomy chapter 23, that'll be up there somewhere. I'm sorry, it's a bit small. But it says, can you read that? This is, he says it in Exodus 22, he says it in Leviticus 25. I should read you that one as well. Uh, Don't charge your brother's interest. Pretty clear whether on money or food or anything else uh, that you have. Um, don't earn interest. You may charge a foreigner a Gentile interest, but not your Jewish brother, your brother Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything that you put your hand to. That's God saying, here's a deal for you Jewish people. I want you to be different. The whole world does that. I want you to live different. That When you lend money to another Jewish person, it is a lend of money interest-free and allow them time to pay it back. And don't ask for any money, any interest on top of it. Just get back the sum that you gave them. And in fact, in Leviticus 25, the Lord repeats those instructions. And not only can, are they not to lend money, but this is the instructions about you can hire people out. This is Leviticus 25 and verse 35, which saith, <clears throat> If one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident, so that he can continue to live among you. Don't take any interest of any kind from him, but fear the Lord your God so that your countrymen may continue to live among you. You must not lend money to him at interest or sell him food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. If one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and he sells himself to you, do not make him work as a slave. He is to be treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident among you and is to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then he and his children will be released. He'll go back to his own clan and to his own property of his forefathers. 
Um, because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear the Lord your God. That's pretty clear. And here are these Jewish leaders, these creditors, clearly, blatantly disobeying God's word and Nehemiah is furious. They were not complying with God's specific instructions, which is always a very sensible thing for us to do. If God says this is the way we should live, uh, we're fools to disobey it, regardless of what the world says. So Nehemiah got angry at these people because they were ignoring God's word. So what does he do? Now what he does is what we need to do. He, number one, verse seven says that he consulted with himself. Sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? He went and had a talk with himself. What do you think, Nehemiah? Well, I think I should do this. He consulted with himself, which is his way of simply saying, as David said this morning, he pushed the pause button. When you get angry, don't react. Give yourself time. Pray, listen to God, ask for God's input into your life. Lord, how do I process this? What should I be doing in response to this? If it's against a particular issue or person or group of people, what words, how do I speak to them in such a way to bring correction? Pause, think, pray, plan. That's what he did. And that's good advice to us. Uh, you ever had the experience where you've been really angry with somebody and for whatever happened and you, you get to your computer and you open up your emails and you write the email and you tell them good and proper and it's very clear and it's very strong you ever done that no I have and then someone wisely has taught me don't send it stick it in your drafts read it the next day now, over the years, I've worked pretty hard on developing this sort of skill of being able to communicate clearly, but not angrily, you know, to communicate and communicate truthfully, but to tone it down, to be careful and, you know, not to exaggerate. Most people exaggerate when they're angry, and so not to exaggerate, but to speak truth, speak facts, and to be clear. And so I put pause on this thing, and the next morning I got up and I read it, and I went, oh my goodness me. That's pretty, that's overstrong. And I thought I was pretty good at doing this stuff. And I even shocked myself and I was just grateful. I am so glad I didn't send that. Because that would not have helped the situation, that would have fueled the situation. So that's what Nehemiah does and that's what we should do. When we get angry, consult with yourself, talk with God, pray, consider, reflect. Number two, then he does exactly what Jesus tells us to do. He goes to see the offenders, the people who are causing this. Now note this, whenever we talk about personal conflict or conflict with people, most time, me included, we automatically go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is if someone has offended you or they have a sin against you, then go and speak to them personally and privately, not to anybody else, go and speak to them. If they listen to you, good, you've won back your brother or your sister. If they don't listen to you, then take along somebody else to help. Somebody else, not just as a witness, but somebody who will help them understand what you're trying to communicate. And if they don't listen to you, and they don't listen to them, and they're unrepentant of their sin, then take it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, then remove them. We all are familiar with that. 
We all go there pretty automatically. That doesn't happen in this chapter. In this chapter, the people who are the poor are oppressed and they have probably said something already and gotten nowhere. So they go to the leader, they go to the governor. And the governor doesn't say to them, oh, you need to go talk to them, he doesn't say that at all. He says, leave it with me. And he goes to bat for them. There's another biblical principle that sometimes, where it's not a personal individual offence or affront, but when there is something being done wrong, pub, uh, wrong and it's public, it's broader, then sometimes it's the responsibility of those in authority to act, not the individual people to act. Does that make sense? Got to think it through. So that's what he does. Verse 7, I pondered in my mind then and then I accused the nobles and the officials. He confronted them. He told them very clearly, you are responsible for doing this. This is what you have done and it is wrong and you should be cutting it out. You're not doing it, you're charging interest and the Bible says you shouldn't. You're making a bundle out of this. And not only that, the Gentiles who are looking on and watching, they're, they're making fun of us because of your behaviour. You're not behaving any differently to the world. And so we are a reproach. God's name is dishonoured. The Bible doesn't say it, but it would appear that they didn't listen. Who do you think you are? You're just Goddy. We've been here for years. This is our town. Who knows? I don't know what they said. And so he does the next thing, which is what Jesus said to do. Having confronted them and gotten nowhere, he then takes it publicly. It was a public sin. And it certainly was necessary for the whole community to be aware of the change that was coming. And so Nehemiah, probably miffed, I would have been, he calls this great assembly of the people where he does the same thing. He goes through the process. He outlines very clearly what they have done wrong. Verse 8, you are um, receiving and helping these poor families to sell their kids into slavery and you are treating them as slaves. The Bible says to treat them as hired servants. You're in fact doing it that way. Verse 8 says they were silent. They were busted. They'd been caught. So Nehemiah continued. Secondly, he says, what you're doing is not right. In fact, what you are doing is both wrong and harmful. It's damaging. And he's talking about the Gentiles in verse 9 again. You should rather fear God and follow him and be concerned about your witness, the example you set for those who are not God's people at this stage. And then thirdly, he says to them, and you are also lending money but charging interest. Also, something the Bible says that you are not to do. And then he's very clear on his solution. Cut it out. Stop it now. Stop it immediately. Verse 11. And not only stop it, give back to the people what you've already taken from them. Give them back the money you got in interest. Give them back their homes that you bought off them from their mortgages. Give them back their lands and their properties and everything else. Give it back. Do it now. It's pr pretty clear, pretty blunt. Verse 12, they said, we will. They came under conviction. I can imagine Nehemiah pushing them, you know, we will, you will what? We'll give it back. All of it? All of it. We'll do what you have said and we will not charge interest from this point on. It's almost like Nehemiah is not sure if he believes them. It's great that they've said this publicly before the whole assembly. So he calls in the priests verse 12 and he gets them to take an oath 
an oath in the presence of the priests who represents the people before God. In other words, these people will remind God of the words that you are saying today. It's our equivalent of saying here, take this and sign it here, that you will not be doing this anymore. And they take the oath. And then Nehemiah, because he's dressed in a robe, he takes his robe, he's probably got crumbs or something spilled in the front of it from breakfast, and he shakes it out. It's called a prophetic act in the Bible. Often you have some of the key leaders, they, they'll enact something, and that's what he's doing here. And he, he also gives an explanation with it. He says to them, what I have done, this, verse 13, I also took out the folds of my robe and I said, in this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who doesn't keep his promise today. So may a man be shaken out and emptied. Shaken his robe, the crumbs of whatever are falling off, and he says, may that happen to you if you break your promise. May you be shaken out, may you be emptied, may you have nothing. Pretty blunt. And then, of course, the people's response to all of that, verse 13, they all said, Amen. <laughs> we agree. Poor creditors. Maybe they were part of the amen. And what's then really lovely is there was this general note of praise, of thanksgiving to God in the people. That which had started as an outcry ends in an outcry of praise. Because Nehemiah had acted appropriately. He was furious, righteously anger at that which is inappropriate. He paused, he confronted, and then he did it with authority, publicly. What do we learn from this? The Bible has given to us, for examples. Well, here are, say, five. I don't know if that will do six, but here are five really quick things. Number one, <clears throat> just like these people were ignoring God's word, it would be good for us to know and obey God's word, to read it, become familiar with it, and to follow God's instructions. And sometimes it will surprise you. It will line you up. When I became a Christian, I think I told you this story before, but maybe a thousand years ago. When I became a Christian and I was a follower of, just started being a follower of Jesus, I didn't know anything. And we had a, I was year 12, and we had a conversation uh, amongst our peers one lunchtime. Was it okay for a, a boy and a girl to sleep together? Answer? Can you have sex outside of marriage? And the answer is? Well, I said, no, of course it is. You can do that, provided you love each other. Well, I thought that was a loving thing to do. Isn't that what the world thinks? That's certainly what I used to think. And then I'm reading my Bible, and it's through reading the Bible that I come across this very clear instructions that we're not to commit fornication. What's fornication? Sex outside of marriage. It's sleeping around. It's very clear in God's word. You are not to do that. And I immediately felt convicted, embarrassed, because I had said in a group of people, yeah, no, no, that's okay. And I had gotten it totally wrong. We need to know God's word so that we can live God's word. We all, we're not going to be perfect. We're going to stumble, we're going to fall, we're going to get off track. But God's word brings us back on track. So that's number one. We should know and obey God's instructions, all of them. Number two, passage reminds me that God is very concerned about what we do with our money. It's important to him. We're these creditors who was doing it wrong, but God is concerned about how we earn it, how we save it, how we invest it, how we spend it, how we give it away. 1 Timothy 6.10 talks about how the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and things that can go wrong in your life. So as a follower of the Lord Jesus, if that's where you're up to, be careful what you do with money. 
It's not simply up to you. God's word gives instructions about that. Thirdly, um, God is concerned, especially in this passage, with how we treat one another. Uh, These creditors were ripping off God's people for their love of money. They'd gotten their wires totally crossed. Nehemiah provided the exact opposite uh, guideline in that paragraph from 14 to 19, where he's the governor and he's not only loving God, but he's very generous and very careful in how he's treating people. God is concerned about how we treat one another. Number four, this thing had gone on for a long time, so I think a lesson from this passage is prolonged sin, public or personal sin, takes a toll on God's work in your life. You might be committing a sin, it could be a sinful habit, and if it's not addressed, if it's just in secret and you think it's not hurting anything, this principle is going to say it will come back and it will bite you, it will impact you. You may not have noticed, but in verses 1 to 13 of Nehemiah chapter 5, there is no mention of the work on the wall. It stopped. Why had God's project, God's work stopped? Uh, Because there was conflict. There was this sin. And it had to be addressed. And it wasn't until it was addressed that the work then continued. So for us, prolonged sin, personal or public sin, does take a toll on God's work in our life. We also learn from this, I think, that when we're going to correct a problem, it's usually better to do it face to face, not to avoid it, not to excuse it, not to dodge it. Certainly ask God, Lord, can you help me with this? Can you change my attitude? Can you give me the right words if I've got to talk to somebody else? If it's my own sin, then help me to deal with it like Nehemiah said. Stop it immediately. Deal with it. And correction is usually more effective when you make a promise to somebody else, you tell them what's going on and you get them to hold you to account. Listen, I've been wrestling with this in my life and I'm dealing with it and this is what I've decided to do and I'm telling you because I want you to ask me each week, each month, whatever it is, how often we meet, can you ask me how I'm doing with this, please? That can be a very helpful thing to do. It'll help you grow in humility and all sorts of things. I think that'll do. Let me finish by telling you this story. In a monastery in Germany, um, on the wall of the monastery, there are some reindeer, not reindeer, deer antlers. And there's two, there's two, ant, two lots of antlers and they're interlocked, they're entangled. And it would appear that these two animals, these two deer, had uh, gotten out of step with each other and they had charged each other, headbutted each other and in the process their horns had locked in and they couldn't get them apart which then meant they couldn't eat, which meant they died from starvation. Slow process. And that when they came across the skeleton, they left the antlers intact and, you know, cut them off and then hung them up on the wall as a reminder that when you get entangled in strife and you can't untangle it, it can kill you spiritually. It can kill God's work in you. It can destroy God's work in you. So my last question for you tonight. Is there any strife in your life? Is there any conflict? Is there anybody or any bodies that you're out of step with, you're out of sorts with, you're cranky with, you're hurt by, you're upset with? Could be at home. Might be at work or school. Might be in church. 
And if there is, we'll do what Nehemiah did. Do what these people did. Don't just ignore it. Deal with it. Talk to God about it. If necessary, go talk to somebody else about it. Maybe you need to talk to somebody in authority. Um, we have some elders here tonight. You go talk to them about it. Um, don't let it fester because it can hinder God's work in you. Make sense? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this remarkable man, Nehemiah, and his courage and his leadership. Help us, Lord, to learn from him how we can likewise deal with awkward, difficult situations, with conflict. Give us wisdom and grace to know how to do it well. And like him, help us to do it in accordance with your word. We thank you for him and we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the one who makes it possible for us to be reconciled to you and reconciled to one another. Lord, hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.